Hi, this is the Tempter Podcast where we discuss embedded Linux, IoT development, and anything else we might find interesting. Your hosts today are Kim Raj and Cliff Brake. Today we're joined by a special guest, Blake Miner, and we're going to discuss databases and various aspects of databases. Blake has a little more experience in this, so we're, we're looking forward to learning from Blake and, and uh, learning a little bit more about databases. So Blake, maybe you could give us an ba- uh, introduction, background, what type of work you do, well, tell us about your company, and yeah, what, you, sure. what, what you like to do. Yeah, sure. Yeah, hi guys. Um, yeah, so I do a lot of custom software development uh, here in Northeast Ohio and do a lot of web applications and uh, have a lot of experience building inventory management software and a little bit of a, uh, embedded systems and that sort of thing. Um, do a lot of Node.js and Go. And in my experience, I found that data itself has this substantial value and it's ever increasing. And um, I think I, I personally get really excited about databases. Um, mm-hmm. I think that we take them for granted and we don't think about them very much because um, they can they can be kind of boring and, and they're really complicated. And so it kind of reminds me of like the Linux kernel, right? Like you just use them, uh, databases, and you don't really think about them. And I think that generally that's fine, but I think that there's a problem. And that is that a lot of the databases that we still use today, you know, is technology that was developed 50 years ago. And I think that sometimes programmers can fall into this trap, get stuck thinking about databases in a particular way. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's uh, that's kind of my experience, and and the other thing that I'll add to that is that in building web applications, I think that web apps are essentially just giant data synchronization problems, mm-hmm. um, where in general you have like a, a a database, you have your backend, maybe an HTTP server, something like that. Then you have your web browser where your app is running, uh, the front end p- portion of it, and you're taking data in from the back end and manipulating the, the DOM, um, and then that renders things on the screen. So you can think of it as like your data is coming from the database through your web back end to the browser and then rendered on the screen as this giant data pipeline. Um, and then when the user clicks on something or types something into a web form, then the data has to flow back the other way through the browser to the back end to the database. Mm-hmm. Um, and that data synchronization problem is really, I would say, maybe 99% of the work um, that's done when you're building web applications. So, yeah, I think that databases are an important link in that chain, so to speak. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, when you have a browser and, and a server, you've got two computers, so you essentially have a distributed system, and, that, and then that's where things get hard. So that's a good point. Sure. So, yeah, so I think the databases are um, kind of like core of many um, systems, just to add on to, like, you know, a lot of times people in smaller systems, they think that, you know, I only need a few things you know, why do I need a database? And they kind of start managing using files or some other ways. And then suddenly, you know, that's kind of a uh, 
wrong foot to start with, I believe. So, um, so, so Blake, how do you kind of uh, define like you know what is a database? Just kind of you know a general overview or yeah, things yeah. That, you know what are its properties um, that you would like to specify? Yeah, yeah. I think we should definitely talk about that. I I want to talk about what what is a database for sure talk about maybe some relational databases and, and document stores and maybe some other exotic databases and then uh, maybe talk about some of our experiences with those things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, going back to your question, what is a database? I think it's basically just, you know, it's a, it's a thing where you store data, you process data, and you look up data. Um, mm -hmm. That's basically what a database is. And so when you think about it, you know, a file is technically a database, um, a very rudimentary one, but you can store data. And if you write some custom processing, you can process data and look it up. So, mm -hmm. and, and in processing data, generally what you're trying to do is answer some sort of business question, right? You're taking data in and then you're trying to enhance the value of that data by processing it. Um, and that allows you to maybe answer some more interesting questions about your your data or whatever. So um, when you say processing data, do you mean queries or do you mean like taking your data and then generating more data or maybe both or maybe both? Yeah, okay. like I think that um, you know, in general with relational databases, right, we're doing real time processing of the data. When we when you run a select query against a database, um, you're really telling the database, hey, this is what the result set should look like. Um, you're declaring that um, since since SQL is a very declarative um, language when you're doing read uh, queries. So when you when you send that command to the database, here's a select query. The database then figures out how to generate that result set. And so it's doing data processing at the same time as looking up your data. Mm -hmm. So that's a common paradigm for relational databases, but it doesn't have to be that way. In, in general, you could do some offline data processing or even in uh, a lot of situations you might have a you might have a, a transactional database that runs your day-to-day -day operations, say like a company ERP system. And then you might have like an OLAP database that handles all of your read queries and then at 2 a.m. every night, you build the OLAP database from your uh, from your transactional database. Okay. So here, yeah, here's a here's a here's a dumb question. You you said uh, OLAP or something. What, what's that? Yeah. So OLAP stands for Online Analytical Processing, I think. Oh, okay. But it's 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 mostly just a jargon word for this is your uh, this is the database that we're going to issue all of our reports against. Um, so what's commonly done um, for large databases is because you don't want to issue a bunch of read queries against the transactional database um, because you'll slow the, the database down. Um, it's possible that you know that's a write-heavy database and it's optimized for writes. When you issue a bunch of reads against that database or you're trying to do a lot of data processing against those data, then you could cause performance issues. So what sometimes companies will do is they'll say, okay, well, at 2 a.m. when no one's using the transactional database, we're just gonna hammer this thing 
and um, generate our read-only database, which is kind of a snapshot of our transactional database at 2 a.m. And then the next business day, people will issue all of their queries against the the OLAP database, if you will. And that'll kind of uh, allow um, business analysts or whoever needs the data to um, just hammer that database without any real impact in the production system. Okay, great. Thanks for explaining that. Yeah. So what are some important attributes of a database that, that you look for or reasons we use databases? What, what comes to mind there? Sure. Um, I, I think, well, I'll kind of circle back to your question, but I kind of think of databases as like a giant onion of caching layers. Like there's a, when you're processing your data, you want to basically um, in create derived data. So data that's based on your source data. And you generally have, uh, like I was talking earlier about how you have two separate databases where one's emphasized, you know, runs really good at write performance, one's really good at read performance. Um, you may, instead of processing the data every time you want it, like in real time, you might have these caching layers of, hey, th these data are based on these data. Um, and and it kind of moves outward. Um, so so would you use a different database for your caching layer than your than your transaction layer, or would you use the same one, or maybe both? Or yeah, you could you could use the same database, or you could use separate databases. So mm -hmm. it, it all kind of depends, and companies do different things. But so what's a common um, scenario that that you would run run into? I mean, specifically what what database or yeah, so one thing that I've used in the past, um, which is kind of an example of this, is um, having a relational database like, say, a MySQL or something like that um, handle a lot of your long-term data storage. And then having a caching layer, like, say, Redis or something like that, uh, some sort of key value store, that's going to be handling a lot of your read queries. And then if you have a cache miss, then you go to the, the relational database. Mm -hmm. So basically having a caching layer that your backend can talk to, to check and see, hey, do we have the most up-to-date value here? If so, use it. Otherwise, go to your relational database. And the problem with that uh, approach is yeah, you get performance, which is great, uh, especially if your queries in the relational database would be really slow. But the problem is, is that now you're entering into the world of cache invalidation. Um, and they, they say, <laughs> what's the saying? Two of the hardest problems in computer science are naming things, cache invalidation, and of course, dealing with off by one errors. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, so cache invalidation can be really, really uh, tricky. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I wanted to kind of ask you guys, what are some of your favorite databases and 
maybe why before we start to talk about like what a relational database necessarily is i just kind of wanted to get your feel for what what do you think your favorite database is that you're currently using yeah i've, I've used mongodb quite a bit in the in the past 10 years just because we use meteor for one of our projects and that pretty much drove us to the, that database and we've also started using sqlite quite a bit recently and that's been a lot of fun so that's my recent experience yeah sqlite actually is interesting um you know it's kind of showing up in smaller systems too like you know uh, embedded systems and i think android uses it as well oh yeah and, mm -hmm. and i've had some experience of like dealing with it so it'll be interesting to talk about sqlite you know i think uh, it's a it's written in C, I believe. So it's an it's an old database, but then I think it has been getting a lot of adoption recently, and maybe there's a reason for that. Um, yeah, I why myself, do you think that is? Why do you think the adoption is increasing? Um, yeah, I think it's probably you know addressing the problem in a more mathematical manner, and. Um, and so the approach I guess they have is more or less, you know, there's um, a lot of testing that they do. So it's basically high quality. Um, and obviously because, you know, a lot of thought put into um, and a lot of optimized work in it over a period of time um, have probably the, you know, impact on less amount of uh, kind of like issues that you find, especially in embedded space, you know, you need to be optimal uh, because you probably don't have that much of compute or that much of um, resiliency also at the same time. So I, I guess th those might be some of the reasons why, you know, it's nimble on resources. And, um, and I think the testing that they do, I guess, you know, is, is amazing. They have probably done a ton of um, corner cases sorted out and and you know the simply the quality of the code is amazing yeah i feel that it's you know it's been 20 years in the making or i i'm not sure what the time span is but sure it's uh it's it's been a very focused effort by a at least one guy has been consistent through the whole project but i, I feel like to re reproduce that that work would take you another 20 years starting now. So it just takes a really long time to get to that level of quality and refinement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of feel like this is just a, I, this is my impression. I don't know if this is necessarily based on fact or anything, but my impression is that SQLite had a slow adoption early because of maybe some uh, random issues with data corruption or, just maybe a bug here and there that kind of gave it a bad reputation early on. And then as they s fixed those problems and the database became more solid, people realized the importance of having an embedded database, um, which is quite different from setting up a Postgres instance or, or MySQL or Oracle or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there is a lot of value in an embedded database um, in terms of portability, but also, like you said, Kim, in terms of performance, um, where, you know, of course, for, um, there's only so much 
horsepower that you can get on, say, a an embedded system, you know, running a, a small little ARM chip or something like that. But um, for those systems, generally, you don't have a lot of data anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the perfect use case where you don't have this giant, you know, 60 megabyte database that you're installing. I say giant, but, you know, 60 megabytes could be a lot mm-hmm. um, for an embedded system. And and then you have to talk to it over a TCP connection, you know, which, of course, is going to happen over local host. But SQLite just has a, a little bit more of that embedded feel. Your entire database is stored in a single file. Um, I mean, you know, uh, I put an asterisk on that, but you know what I mean? It's it's stored yeah. in a file and uh, and uh, yeah, that's, there's some a lot of benefit to that. Sure. And it, they they are, they are moving it forward too. Like they they used to have a rollback journal, and then and then they implement, implemented a write ahead log, and I believe there's a yeah a wall two mode now as well. So they keep adding better you know new features that that allow better performance and better resiliency and so on. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, and I I feel like we maybe if uh, I I'm glad that I asked that question. I think that. Um, it's good to see what you guys are using. I, I've uh, I've started to gain an appreciation for Postgres, but mm-hmm. um, I've used MySQL the most, um, and I've used Redis a fair bit. Um, and then, of course, I've tried I've kicked the tires on many many other databases, uh, including Mongo and, and many others. But um, yeah, I I don't know if I have a favorite database, but I do think that Postgres has uh, some really interesting implementation details that I think are underappreciated. So, yeah, that's so, the, that's the advice I hear now is unless you have a really good reason to do something different, use Postgres. Yeah, that's yeah. actually good wisdom there. Okay, um, for a relational database, anyway, if that's what yeah. you're looking to to use. Um, so, wh- why do you think Postgres has done better than than MySQL? That's that's a question I've been wondering. Maybe this is a tangent, but you know, it just seems like a healthier project and overall and and preferred these days. Where years ago, MySQL seemed to be the preferred solution. Sure. Yeah, I I don't really know the answer to that, um, but I can take some stabs at it. I think that um, there the Postgres um, project seems to be a little bit more open source and less. Uh, corporate sponsored, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Uh, whereas MySQL is, you know, owned by Oracle, essentially. And prior to that, Sun Microsystems, uh, it was very much like their project, right? And I think that there was a lot of, um, you know, it was about adding features, not redoing the fundamental um, inner workings. Um, now, I, I would say that MySQL did have, you know, the NODB when and they migrated from my ISAM to NODB storage engines. Um, that was a pretty big change. Um, but even still, I think that you know NODB has been pretty much locked down that that uh, storage engine for you know well over a decade. And I, I don't think that they've really considered changing the inner workings. Whereas I think Postgres, uh, just as one example. And I don't want to get too technical before we even explain what a, what a SQL database is, but um, 
they they kind of uh, implemented this uh, serializable serializable snapshot isolation uh, technology, where you can kind of get the benefits, the performance benefits of snapshot isolation, um, but also get the safety benefits of uh, of transactions being executed serially. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in this talk, hopefully. But um, I think that that's you know underappreciated. So, mm -hmm. so is it um, something I'm learning here? Is that um, you know, like languages you use different tools for different purposes? Is it fair to say that there are databases that could be used specific to use cases as well, or? Yeah, I think so. I I think that a relational database is generally a relational database. They they all kind of share the same functionality uh, for, for the most part. And kind of this kind of like eases into our next topic, which is what is a relational database and SQL database. But mm -hmm. essentially, it's just tables and rows. Um, mm -hmm. So every relational database is tables and rows, and every relational database pretty much uses B plus trees for indexing. And they all use SQL, which is a declarative uh, query language, um, you know, where you, you issue a command like a select statement to um, read from the database, or you, you know, issue an insert command to insert data or update uh, to update data and delete to delete data. Um, and that language is pretty standardized across all relational databases mm -hmm. um, and has been since like the 1970s. So, um, you know, people are, developers are used to seeing SQL, right? They, if, if you're dealing with databases at all, you're probably going to need to learn SQL. Um, and, uh, so I think for that reason, there hasn't been as as much innovation. I think that there has been some innovation, but I think that there hasn't been as much innovation. And I also think that to answer your question, Cam, is you know, what other options are there out there? Well, tables and rows are not conducive to every single uh, data model. Like maybe your data model is, uh, you know, Ancestry.com. Maybe you care about hierarchical data. Mm -hmm. Right, where you have parent-child relationships, and you know you're trying to query, hey, you know, is this person related to me, or how is this person related to me? Uh, tables and rows, B plus tree indexes, not the solution for that problem. Um, and if you've ever seen maybe uh, an ERP system try to implement a bill of materials in a relational database, uh, clunky would be an understatement mm. of how that system behaves and performs. Um, so I, I guess, yeah, hopefully, does that answer your question? Yep, yep. Yeah, so, and then I think that the other thing that's uh, really characteristic of relational databases, SQL databases, is that, you know, you connect to them, they're, they're a separate thing, you connect to them over a TCP connection, um, you know, with SQLite being a, a notable exception to that. And so in general, when you need data, you're pulling the database over that TCP connection. You're, you're saying, hey, what's, what's the data now? OK, how about now? How about now? And um, for example, in a web application, that might be 
maybe every 15 seconds you want to refresh the data that the user is seeing. So that means that every 15 seconds you're issuing uh, a select query, at least one, maybe multiple, to the to the database to pull to see if the data has changed. Um, and similarly, since it's a select statement, usually all of the data processing occurs at read time. Um, so you know it's it's real time processing of the data at that moment. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, but on the upside, relational databases have a lot of really good data validation, uh, enforcing of constraints. Um, for example, every table usually has a schema uh, with with fields with with uh, specific data types, and you can create you know indexes, including unique key indexes. Um, so for example, you want to make sure that there's no duplicates in your data. The database will handle that for you. Um, and unique, you know, like foreign key constraints, um, those sorts of things uh, are, you know, really good features of a relational database. So I think mm -hmm. that's why people use them. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we hear the term acid. What, what does that mean? Yeah, so another big characteristic of uh, databases is what what sort of safety guarantees are there? What do I get um, when I am storing data? And ACID stands for uh, atomicity, consistency, isolation, and durability. And what we're talking about here are transactions, right? So what is a transaction? Transaction is basically a set of commands, uh, write commands to the database. And what you want to make sure is that all of those writes get grouped together and they happen on the database with certain, uh, with certain predictability. And so Atomicity is talking about, is, is providing this guarantee of abortability. So if a group of write fails, like let's say one of the writes in the middle fails for whatever reason, maybe there's a power failure, maybe uh, the hard drive just died, um, maybe the network connection was interrupted. In those cases, um, you want to make sure that the entire transaction is aborted not just part of the transaction. And the reason why you want that is because you don't want your database to become inconsistent. Um, for example, if you have a bank and you are withdrawing money from one person's account and depositing it into another person's account, you don't want the that transaction to be half completed. You either want it to be completed or not. Um, for example, you don't want to create money or destroy money. That's like against the rules of well, yeah, in this case, it's against yeah. the rules of the bank. So. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> um, and people would be a little upset, maybe, if money just vanished. And yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, and then so that's atomicity, and then consistency is really some sort of guarantee that certain constraints are not violated. Um, and those can be application specific or sometimes they're database specific. But what we're talking about here is 
is kind of vague, but it's really just what are some invariants that cannot be violated? For example, we talked about like the unique key. Like we know that everything in this particular field of this table has to be uh, a unique value. If it's not unique and we have duplicates, then we've violated that invariant. So the database needs to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, or your application needs to make sure that that doesn't happen. Or let's say you have a foreign key constraint um, where you need to make sure that um, a record that you're referring to actually exists. Um, uh, so uh, that's consistency. And then isolation um, is talking about concurrency, really. So it's talking about how does the database handle concurrent edits of the same data? And this is kind of what we were talking about earlier with uh, serializable um, and snapshot isolation. Um, serializable is the strongest guarantee that a database can provide, which basically means that um, it's going to behave as if all transactions were issued serially, even if there was some concurrency happening behind the scenes. So um, basically, you could think of the database as having no concurrency, uh, which, which is really simple uh, to think about. And it avoids a lot of strange uh, data consistency issues. Um, now, what's very common is actually a slightly weaker guarantee, which is called snapshot isolation. And there are some weird corner cases that can happen to your data if uh, certain things happen in certain orders. Um, so I, I don't really want to dive into it much deeper than that, but I would encourage pretty much every developer who's using a database that's not set to serializable to understand what snapshot isolation means, um, because it is the default mode of operation for, say, MySQL and many other databases are just using snapshot isolation by default. And the reason why is because even though it's a weaker guarantee, it's much more, uh, it has much more performance than the serializable uh, isolation setting. Um, and one of the things about isolation settings is that they are also pretty well defined in the relational database world. Um, most databases use the same kind of terminology and implement all of the different types of um, data isolation modes, so to speak, um, and all provide different levels of guarantees on, you know, if things happen in a weird order, in a particular order, and there's overlap between multiple transactions, multiple writers changing data at the same time, you know, uh, what can happen to your data? Can you, can you have data inconsistencies? And the answer is yes, you can have some data inconsistencies uh, in many databases using their default isolation behavior. And going back to what we talked about with Postgres, um, they use something called serializable snapshot isolation, which is kind of the combination of those two, right? It, it is serializable, and they use snapshot isolation with a few tricks up their sleeve to implement that uh, so they can get pretty much the performance of snapshot isolation, but the guarantees of serializable, which is nice. Wow, that's neat. Yeah. Um, and then the last uh, letter in ACID is durability, 
D. And that's just a storage guarantee. It basically means when my transaction commits, has the data been stored to disk? Um, uh, and, you know, most databases basically uh, F-sync every time you commit a transaction. Um, and what that means is that they flush the buffers, all the write buffers in the, in the kernel and in the operating system, all the data gets flushed to disk every time you commit a transaction, which is an expensive operation. Um, and then once the data has been F-synced to the disk, um, you can pretty much count on it actually being stored there. Um, there might be a few nanoseconds delay before, say, this, the, the head on the hard drive actually moves to the right spot, or if you have an SSD, it might take a little bit more time for that cache to get flushed to disk because every disk controller has its own cache as well. But for the most part, you can guarantee that your data is there within a few nanoseconds of having F-synced it. Um, now, I, when, it, when you're talking about durability guarantees, there really is no perfect durability guarantee, right? Like um, hard drives go bad and um, data centers get attacked by terrorists and, you know, yeah. weird things can happen. So, um, you know, there are, there are trade-offs on durability guarantees and, and the like. Yeah, one of the things I just learned recently was, you know, SQLite gives you a lot of this. You know, you can pull power, you can crash your app, you can do all kinds of nasty stuff, and it'll generally come back up and the database will still work. You may have lost your last write or something, but, but you know, if, if you just write to a flat file, like a JSON blob or something, and that gets interrupted, there's a much higher higher chance that you'll not be able to read that plot that that chunk of data and use any of it so I feel for embedded systems SQLite even if you're only storing a very small amount of data this durability guarantee is a very valuable feature that helps ensure that your configuration on the device is always usable no matter what happens so sure. yeah I think that's a very important point I think I was this was a question hovering in my mind as well to say hey you know if I have a power loss, then what do I lose, right? In the sense, you know, will my system come up and then just not boot because now my, you know, database is corrupted or something? And I think that's quite valuable because, yeah, as you said, like, if you don't have those guarantees, then, you know, the chances of you kind of coming up with a system that has this corrupted is, is high. Um, yeah. So I yeah. hear this term called uh, NoSQL databases. So do they exist? Yeah, it's. I, I kind of think that NoSQL is a, a more of a marketing term for, mm. hey, here's a database that's not SQL-based, right? Nice. Um, and what we're talking about here are key value stores, uh, document databases like Mongo, um, you know, um, data mm. structure stores like Redis, those sorts of... Uh, things. Mm -hmm. And um, Redis is really interesting because from from a database that's a NoSQL database, what they're what they're offering is a data structure store. So what that means is that they have different data structures that they're 
giving to developers to store data. Like let's say you have a list. Um, maybe you have a set. Maybe you have a map, which would be like a key value store. Maybe you have, um, I don't know, uh, just really giant blobs of data. Um, so they're, they're exposing different APIs for different data structures. Whereas in a relational database, you only have one data structure, and that is the table, right? It's mm -hmm. a, you can think of the table as a list of structs, mm -hmm. right? The, the table has a, an ordered list, um, and inside of it is a fixed number of fields. So your objects have a fixed uh, size, so to speak. Whereas in Redis, um, you know, you, you might have a list and you could also have a set or maybe you have a map. So there's different data structures that they expose and going kind of back to, you know, what is your data model? Like Ancestry.com's data model is hierarchical data. So breaking out of tables and rows and maybe going to more of a tree data structure would be really useful. Um, and so uh, I think that that's really interesting that they provide multiple data structures to developers. Mm -hmm. um, so with, with Redis, do, do they offer any indexing with, with these different data structures? Yeah, so no, that's the trade-off, right? Okay. Um, all your indexes are built manually. Um, but you, but at least you have the data structures with which to do that. Sure. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah. So that's the downside is that, you know, you're if you want to create a caching layer or an index um, of your data, then uh, you have to do that manually. And then you have the cache and validation problem, right? right. That one of the hardest problems of computer science. <laughs> sure. So. Um, you know, it can be tricky uh, to deal with those systems, but it's really cool that they expose different um, data models or, you know, different data structures to handle your data model. And for example, the data, the data model for running Twitter is going to look quite different than the data model for running a manufacturing company. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think this is why people tend to gravitate toward the relational model because tables and rows handle 99 or maybe not 99, but 90, 90 ish, 95% of most data. Um, whereas there are, there are other data structures that are out there other than the table um, and B tree indexes. So um, yeah, that's interesting. One, one thing I've learned. So I, I've been working with Mongo for quite a while and it's been neat you know you can basically stuff anything you want you can have deeply nested data and it, it's really handy for documents which works well for a lot of problems but one thing that things can kind of get a little messy and out of control and that's one thing I've appreciated about working in SQL a SQL database is the constraints that rows and, and columns give you the table constraint it seems like yeah. it, it kind of encourages a little more sane data model and a little bit flatter data structures, which generally are just easier to handle all the way around. And it, again, like you said, it doesn't fit every application, but it, it's a constraint. And I feel like a lot of times constraints can, can guide us in the right direction if we let them. 
Agreed. Yeah, I think that constraints are generally good because, like we talked about earlier, data is valuable. Mm -hmm. And you don't want your data to be corrupted. You don't want, you know, a programming blunder to create inconsistencies in your database. And then if it does, how do you deal with them? Um, and I think that you know, when you enter the world of Redis or Mongo or, you know, databases with a little bit less structure, it's a little bit more loosey-goosey, um, and you start to get a little bit more loose with your data, that's great because you have the flexibility to do that. But it's not so great because you can run into situations where you have, you know, corrupted your data potentially, um, or you're violating invariants that you didn't know you were violating. Um, and maybe you don't find out for several weeks or months. Sure. Um, so, um, yeah, there's, there's trade-offs, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. So, so moving on here, unless you had anything to say about that, but one, one thing that's a big deal right now is reactivity in real time. So where, where sure. do you start with that? Cause you know, you, you talked about in your web applications polling polling the database maybe every 15 seconds to get updates, but sometimes that's not good enough. You want updates to happen instantly as soon as they happen. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I've never, if you can avoid polling, I think you should. But then mm -hmm. again, um, what is the complexity of that? So I think that when you have a real-time application, especially a real-time web application, it just feels really good yeah. from a user experience perspective. Um, like we take for granted, like when you go to say Yahoo Finance and you're looking at the stock ticker and it's constantly being updated automatically, like that's not polling. The, the web browser is actually receiving updates from the server, you know, via WebSockets or something like that. Um, so technologies where you're doing more of a subscribe, publish, sort of, um, you know, where you subscribe to changes for data and then the publisher publishes those changes to data. Um, it just feels really good from a user experience perspective. But then the problem is, is that these older technologies, you know, these beloved relational databases don't handle this paradigm. Um, and so what you end up with is kind of using if you, if you want that real-time feel, then maybe you want your, your SQL database with maybe, say, a Redis, a Redis caching layer. And then you use, uh, you know, the pub-sub functionality in Redis um, to kind of facilitate that real-time feel. Now, I will say that other databases are catching on to this. Like Postgres, I think, is uh, has some sort of pub-sub functionality in it. So I think that you know, people are kind of catching on that this is maybe the right way to build web applications going forward is we really want to focus on this real-time aspect. Um, but, um, you know, when, when you're polling, not only is it slower and less responsive, but also it's um, more taxing to the database because you're recomputing the same information over and over again, generally. And you might be hitting some caching layers along the way, but, um, you know, that are invisible to the developer, but even still you're, you're wasting bandwidth, you're, you know, doing all sorts of, all, all of the downsides to polling, right? Um, 
And, uh, yeah. So I think that in the future, more systems will be real-time based. Uh, and I think that currently it's more difficult to do that with relational systems. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I, I agree. You know, having used Meteor, which reactivity is its claim to fame, you know. So when sure. things change in a database, they happen instantly in the browser. And, the, and that's been a great experience. I, it's really been good. It's been excellent technology. One thing, one challenge that we're facing in IoT systems is we want reactivity from the edge to the browser. So that's got to go from the edge to the cloud and then to the browser. So we want to extend reactivity beyond the browser and the web app. So what one thing we've been doing in the Simple IoT project is is kind of we've been using the NATS. Uh, message bus and we've kind of ended up where the NATS NAT system is the API for this system so everything flows through the message bus first and then hits the database but I think a lot of other applications are architected where everything kind of revolves around the database so this seems like two fundamentally different architectures and, and I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that or yeah I, I think I think that in the future, um, there's going to be more of a tendency to use embedded databases. Um, I think that, you know, with IoT and and really other trends, it just feels like we're building more and more distributed systems and more and more peer-to-peer -peer systems and maybe not as many uh, giant server farms um, at least I think that that's maybe the goal of some development but the problem is is that it's very hard to do that right now um, but I think that when you have a database embedded in your back end you know as more of an API rather than uh, having a database that you know you issue uh, SQL commands to, or, you know, you connect to it over a TCP connection, even. Um, I think that when you have the database as like, almost like a software library in your binary that gets compiled in, then that coupling between your backend and your database is more in line with what you're trying to do, which is, like you said, you want to be able to almost program the database to do certain things. Like you want to tell the database, hey, when I receive data in from this edge node, maybe some sort of sensor, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, reading some data, maybe on air quality or something like that. And it's sending the data over some sort of cell modem out to the Internet to your back end cloud server. When the cloud server receives that, you know, you kind of want to say, OK, well, when this data comes in, we want to save it sure but we also want to push it up to the web browsers that are connected to me um you know and do that instantly um so i think that having the database a little bit closer to your to your server backend um is beneficial um and i don't see a lot of databases doing that right now um things like things like the the bolt dbs in the go world in Go, there's a database called BoltDB um, that's, I think, been, for the most part, development has been abandoned, but it's still 
available, you know, people still use it. And I think that that's nice that you have an API to interact with the database and you can kind of tell the database what to do um, with some custom logic that, you know, you build in. Um, so I think that there's going to be more of a trend toward that. And that I think will also help uh, people build real-time systems. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. I I've been uh, I've been very interested in databases. I've been kind of working on a, a project on the side, as well, um, based on some of my experiences. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about that at all, or yeah, yeah. Glad to hear about any open source projects you're working on, or or things that you're you're interested, or technology trends you see coming. So, yeah. Yeah. I I I think that databases are really interesting. I think that there are some shortcomings that have just not been addressed, and um, some of the, uh, like, just as an example, uh, you know, uh, in my experience, sometimes we are kind of capturing the data that we need, but then we discard it when we save it to the database. And uh, I'll give you an example. So imagine you're building an inventory management system, right? Um, initially, you just try to keep things simple. We just want to we want to update our inventory. So we have a, a list of products and we have the current on-hand inventory for them. And when we sell one, you know, we decrease the inventory, right? And when we buy one and it arrives, then we increase the inventory. But then we also need to adjust the inventory because maybe one gets lost or, um, you know, we find one randomly in our warehouse. So we, do all, we also do inventory adjustments. Maybe we don't save those inventory adjustments. Like we 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 update the on hand amount, but we don't save the fact that we adjusted the inventory. Because um, you know we're just trying to keep this application simple, right? Well, then later we find out, you know, we really need to know when those inventory adjustments occurred, but we didn't keep track of those data. Maybe we want to see like historical inventory levels for a given product. Now we know what the sales are because we have a database. You know, a table that keeps track of when each sale occurred and when that product was picked out of inventory. And we know we have a very detailed record of when we received, you know, all these products because we have a table that keeps track of every time we receive inventory. But we don't have the table that tells us when the adjustments occurred. And so we're like, well, darn, there's some data that we have kind of been capturing because we've just been kind of changing our on-hand amount willy-nilly, but we don't know exactly when these adjustments occurred, so we can't really see historical inventory levels. Um, maybe there was a business case for wanting to do that. And so I would argue that, you know, there's a solution to that problem. Um, the problem is, is that we, th we thought, you know, we were just trying to keep things simple, but then later we found out we needed some data that we're not capturing. Um, and I think that a solution to that is event sourcing, where basically you capture one giant event log of everything that happens in the system. Um, and then all other data is derived from that list, from that event log. And so going through this again, let's just say we did that from the very beginning. We had a giant log of everything that happened in the system. 
And one of the entries in that log was, you know, update inventory of product X, uh, decrease it by two, right? Maybe two got lost in the warehouse or something. So then our system, maybe we don't store that data in our, maybe we don't have like an adjustments table or anything like that. But later when we decide we want an adjustments table, we can just go back to the log and kind of replay it from the beginning of time, all of the events and rebuild our, you know, uh, adjustments table from scratch, so to speak. And we can do this automatically. Um, so I think that event sourcing is another thing that can be really helpful for larger systems. Um, for one reason is because sometimes you're already kind of capturing data, but then we discard some important information about a particular event and just kind of mutate the values in the database that we need to update. Um, and then later we find out, you know, it'd be really nice if we could see some, you know, X, Y, or Z. And then you have to tell the client, oh, we didn't save that. Um, so if you had a giant table of, hey, here's everything that's ever happened in our system, that would be kind of nice. Yeah, that, that's that's very interesting. So would things like Nats, Jetstream, or Kafka do this? Or would those be slightly different than what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, it's similar. Like in Kafka, uh, in Apache Kafka, basically you're doing streaming of data. And I think one of the things that they do is kind of rely on this uh, append-only log mm -hmm. or um, you know one giant log to rule them all sort of deal, which is what I'm talking about. And this idea is called event sourcing. And I think that it's really powerful because then you can just say, well, I, I need some data that's only found in the event log. Um, so that's fine. I'll just replay the event log from the very beginning and stream it to my consumer and then generate a cache. In this case, it would be our table of inventory adjustments. And then I can create my historical inventory levels from that. Um, so yeah, I think that's really, uh, I, I think that that's another paradigm that, um, could be quite useful. And then the other, th the other advantage of event sourcing is, um, data migrations. So data migrations in my experience are, are terrible and they require a lot of careful planning, mm -hmm. uh, and usually involve some downtime and, you know, emergencies at, you know, unreasonable times in the morning <laughs> and um i don't know if you guys have done a lot of database migration type stuff where you know you have a database and you know you want to change the way that you're storing a particular thing or you know maybe the database is just needs a little bit of refactoring move this column from this table move it to a different table that sort of thing but in general i've found these data migrations to be pretty painful um, not only because there is downtime in the system, but, you know, what if something goes wrong during the migration? How do you revert that? What if there's a partial failure? Like, let's say part of the data is migrated, but then in the middle of it, it, it didn't work. Um, so, you know, have to do a, a lot of testing, maybe on a staging environment, just to make sure that you don't end up in these weird situations where you have data corruption because you're data migration partially succeeded, partially failed. Um, 
But now if you had an, uh, an event log, you could create a brand new database that is completely empty. And then you could have a process that just process the, process the event log and generate all of your tables from that and insert all the data that you need. And then when you're done, you just switch over to the new database. Um, so then there's, there, in theory, you could avoid downtime almost completely. Um, and you'd never really have any, if there was a problem during the migration, it's no big deal because your production system is still just running as it normally was. Um, yeah, so event log is then sort of your high level language, so to speak, yeah? and then that generates a database right? on demand. Yeah, it, you could think of it like, here's a log of everything that's ever happened yeah. in my system. And it's a bunch of things that are completely unrelated to each other. So it would be just a, a complete mess of information um, that you couldn't really run any reports against. But you could derive data from that mm. that was in a much more organized way. Um, you know, yeah. and um, then, you know, you'd have your system built around the derived data. So if there was a mechanism that automatically synchronized these things, uh, then you could avoid a lot of headaches, I think. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. So, um, so I think um, towards this, we um, are there any like you know favorite books or podcasts or blogs that you listen to when you are not writing code? Yeah, I, I one of the books that I read on databases, which I thought was just really great, mm -hmm. was uh, Martin Kletman's book. He wrote a book called Data Intensive Applications. Mm. And if you think about it, most applications are data intensive. Um, and he talks about uh, databases. He talks about transactions, durability guarantees, the different ways that we derive data. Uh, how caching works. But then he also talks about, you know, all the things that can go wrong in a database. Things that you wouldn't think about. Things that we take for granted, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, when you have a database that's replicated across three data centers across the world, you know, what could go wrong, right? A lot <laughs> is the answer. <laughs> so you'll never think about databases the same again, probably. Huh? No, no. In fact, yeah. you'll think about like, wow. You know, how do these big companies do it? You know, how did the Googles of the world uh, have these distributed systems and make it all work and have, you know, 99.999% availability and all these things? Um, the answer is they have a lot of really smart engineers working on it and um, they have a lot of servers. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing, but uh, I would highly recommend that book. Um, to yeah. really anyone who is building data intensive applications, um, at the very least reading up on some of the gotchas. Mm. But then of course, if you're also really interested in databases, you can really take a deep dive in that book too. It can be sort of a reference manual, the, the Bible of databases, if you will. Mm. Yeah, that's great. We'll put that in the show notes, a link to it. So, yeah. Uh, as an aside, uh, Kletman is, uh, 
I think he's currently at the Tech University of Munich, but formerly uh, University of Cambridge, and he is kind of heading up a project called Auto Merge, um, which is a, a CRDT type uh, data synchronization tool um, that I would recommend that people look into if they're building any type of collaborative software. Um, and Cliff, kind of like what you're using, you're in simple IoT, you're using uh, a CRDT type system, um, you know, to synchronize data between between the nodes. So I think that uh, Auto Merge is also an interesting project um, that's out there, mm -hmm. and, and Kleppman is kind of heading that project. Okay. Yeah. Great. It's a lot of things going on like that. So that's that's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. How about you guys? Do you guys have any other uh, any other closing thoughts or any books or projects that you've guys run across or any experiences on databases that you want to share? Yeah, I, I guess the the one trend I've been seeing is a huge explosion of technology around SQLite, and I know I've been looking at some of the stuff Fly.io has been doing. It's a lot of neat stuff they're doing. So the idea is you can put a SQLite database at every edge instance and then they'll automatically synchronize data between them. So that's kind of their vision. Yeah, neat. Yeah, so, yeah, keep keep an eye on SQLite. I, I just see new stuff coming out about every week for it. So it's, whether the stuff will stick or not, I guess time will tell, but it's, it's definitely a trend. Very good, very good. So any any last thoughts, any closing thoughts, Kim? No, I think it's um, great. Uh, thanks, um, Blake, for taking time talking to us. I think um, we learned a lot about, you know, databases, how they work. And um, um, I hope we'll do a, a V2 or maybe a second episode of this because I do see there is a lot we can talk about. These are, uh, you know, very uh, vast technologies and ever-evolving. So thank you very much. Yeah, yeah thank you very much. Appreciate you coming on, Blake. and. Again, we appreciate all our listeners. If you have feedback, please reach out to us, and and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, great. Yeah, and I think we're only scratching the surface of this topic. You know, it's oh, absolutely one of those things that you yeah. could just dive right down into a giant rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on, and and hopefully we'll do this again soon. Okay. Until next time.